Before we uh, turn to the uh, book of 2 Timothy, chapter 1, uh, I would like to uh, mention that, that in our church family, uh, some of our members, in this case officers, have lost uh, parents this weekend. Jack uh, Tatro's dad died a little over a week ago um, in, in a hospital during a heart procedure, and that funeral will be uh, this coming Saturday in Tennessee. Uh, also on Friday, uh, Bess Berry's mother went to be with the Lord, and that funeral is this afternoon at uh, 3 o'clock. I'm going to tell this to you just right at at Milan Baptist Church at 3 p.m. today uh, for Bess Berry's mother. And then less than 16 hours later, Margaret Berry's mother passed away, and that funeral will be this Tuesday at First Presbyterian Church in Thomasville, Georgia. So let me lead us in prayer for those families. Uh, Father, we pray for Jack and Margaret and for Bess and ask your comfort with them and their extended families now. And may you uh, be near to them. May they sense your presence in a way they have not otherwise. We thank you for the promise that in Christ we'll be reunited with those we love. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, turn with me, if you will, to, to 2 Timothy as we uh, approach uh, Palm Sunday and Easter. Uh, I wanted to bring uh, a sermon on, on the subject of, of perseverance, uh, persevering in the Christian faith. So 2 Timothy chapter 1, it's on page 995 in these Bibles in the pews. Second Timothy 1, verses 1 to 7. Hear God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers day, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So ends the reading of God's Word. Back in 2016, in uh, November of 2016, Barbara and I accompanied our son John David and his wife Katie to, New York, to the New York City Marathon. Uh, it was his second time to run in that massive event with thousands of runners from more than 200 countries. And the weather that day was ideal. It was just a wonderful trip. But I was thinking later, uh, after that day about reading um, sometime earlier about a man who had, who had been a competitor in one of the previous New York City marathons. And he had been written about in this particular magazine not because he finished first, but because he finished last, dead last. His name is Bob Wieland, and the year that he was in the New York City marathon, though it's much larger now, he finished 19,000 413th, dead last. Uh, some people compete marathon, you know, in a, in a matter of hours, a few hours or, or several hours. 
Uh, here was his time. Four days, two hours, 48 minutes, and 17 seconds. Unquestionably, the slowest time in marathon history. Well, why then did this article appear in a magazine to feature him? Well, the reason was that Bob ran the race not with his legs, but with his arms. He's a veteran. And 17 years earlier, when he was serving in our military in combat, his legs were blown off. And so when he competes in races like that, he sits on a a saddle-type device that weighs 15 pounds. He covers his fist with pads, and then he runs with his arms. His swiftest pace at that time was one mile per hour. He moves his torso forward one step, you might say, at a time. So he finished with breaks, with sleep, four days after the start. And the article was praising him, and I think rightly so, for his perseverance, for his endurance, for his humility, for his attitude not to quit, not to let adversity ruin his life or to keep him from doing things like he wanted to do, such as that marathon. And so the secret, in more ways than one, of completing a marathon is one step in front of the other all the way to the finish line. Many people have compared the Christian life to that. The Apostle Paul said the Christian life is a race. But in any race, it's important to be obedient for the long haul. One writer who saw this spiritual truth wrote, The essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be long obedience in the same direction. In fact, there's a book by that title, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. But it's difficult. It's difficult because the world beats us down, and it throws cold water on our enthusiasm. I began walking with Christ when I was in high school. And a number of people who began with me are no longer in the race. Sometimes we give in to cynicism or just doubt or immorality and materialism or just plain out discouragement. And cynics look at at believers and say, you'll get a little older, you'll get a little older, a little more experienced. You experience life like I've, I've experienced life. And then you also, you'll fade, those doubts will creep in, you'll have your eyes opened, and then you'll fold. But that's not happened. Many of us can stand right here and say we've been through some pretty deep water, maybe deeper than we ever imagined, and yet it's only served to convince us of the reality of what God says. Now, where are we headed in this passage? This is just one sermon. I don't plan to begin a series on 2 Timothy. We're headed to verse 7. And that's the focus. In fact, most people, if they've never read much of 2 Timothy, they know this one verse. God gave us a a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So that's where we're headed. You ever feel that way, that you're timid or fearful? You look at the future with fear, you're, you're fearful about things that might happen, hypotheticals or things that you know are going to happen? Let's look here at the encouraging words Paul gave in the case of Timothy. Paul's writing from prison. This is not uh, one of the early imprisonments of Paul. In this case, he is awaiting being sentenced, and the sentence will be death. 
So he's in a very, very hard place. And for that reason, and knowing that the sentence of this imprisonment will be that, that Paul will be, is to be executed, some people call 2 Timothy Paul's last will and testament. You know about wills. There's an old saying, where there's a will, there's a relative. Okay, so Paul's last will involved not material things. He, from all we know, he really had none. Uh, but it involved passing on a heritage of Christian ministry and, and training and church planting and missionary work. And he's, he's passing that on. His training is to equip Timothy, this, this young pastor who was pastoring in the city of Ephesus. So even we see in the passage, just briefly, that even in the midst of this trial uh, of, of being on death row, you might say, he has confidence And he begins, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. He finds his identity and his calling, that he's he's been called to God. He's been called, he's in Christ Jesus, and that is where his confidence is. These are not the words, it's not the tone of a person who's thrown in the towel, or he hasn't. And so he, he begins that way. We need that confidence as we face trials, not a self confidence but a confidence in God because we don't have, you and I don't possess the resources in ourselves to face most of the hard trials of life. A number of years ago, I was called to a house where I was to meet with a family about a funeral. And a relative from out of town had arrived and she was there early and so we we were sitting in the living room waiting on the other family members to arrive. And this woman, I guess she was maybe in her 40s or something like that, she was coming unglued. She was coming unglued at the loss of, of this relative. And I said to her, you, you have got to find a resource outside of yourself if you're going to go through this. That weekend, one of the other relatives led that woman to Christ. And she wrote me a letter some months later from a church telling me about the church she was attending in another state and how much it had meant to her. But it was like, you can't go through this on your own regardless of how strong you may think you are. We need a resource outside of ourselves, and that's what, what Paul is, has here as he's in prison. And that resource is Christ. And so he pronounces a blessing on Timothy, but he knew this would have been read as the other letters to the church in Ephesus. So really it's a blessing to all of them, though he says to Timothy, grace, that is God's unearned transforming favor, mercy, that's God's tender affection upon us, And peace, the fullness of God's blessing because he's made peace, we've been reconciled through Christ. So those are the resources that that Paul has, God's grace, mercy, peace, and that he says are available to Timothy and upon which Paul was drawing strength in his trials. And then he refers back to their long-term friendships in verses 3 and 4. He remembers the heart of Timothy. He remembers Timothy's tears. They had been together a lot. They had been through a lot. Paul was the the mentor. Timothy was was younger. And there was this deep and abiding friendship between them. And so he says that I pray for you. And he says, I pray for you day and night. He remembers him in his prayers. Do you pray for your friends? We typically pray for, we kind of get in grooves and pray for the same things. Pray for your friends. Pray for even those around you that are strong, that you think, well, that, that person doesn't need prayer. I, I mean, look, uh, that God's really working in that person's life. That's, that's when we really need to pray for 
one another. And he says he longs to see him, that he may be filled with joy. Paul, Paul was not um, silent about his affections, about his feelings toward Timothy. Then in verse 5, Paul mentions Timothy's family heritage. Timothy's mother was a believer. Though she's from a Jewish background, she had come to believe in the Old Testament scriptures about the Messiah. And so she knew Christ. We know from the book of Luke, uh, or Luke tells us in, in Acts, which he wrote uh, in Acts chapter 16, that he makes reference to Timothy's father. And from all we know, Timothy's father never came to faith in Christ. So he had a mother who was a believer. He had a father who was not. And then he mentions his, his grandmother, who also was a believer. And so Paul says, Timothy, I've seen the faith of your mother. I've seen the faith of your grandmother. And I see that same faith in you, and I thank God for it. Well, what I, I just want to mention is that do you see the power in God's covenant here? That God normally works through households. The term we find in the New Testament more than we find the term family is households because it was more than just what we refer to as the nuclear family of father and mother and children. It was extended family. It was households that lived together. And we see how God works through that scripturally. There's no greater opportunity for discipleship than as we raise our own children and grandchildren. God gives us just a brief window of time. It may seem like a long time, but it isn't of just a number of years, really between age 2 and around age 14, where we can try and make the greatest impact on them for Christ. We can't change hearts. We don't have that power. But we can seek to plant seeds by the Holy Spirit's power that will be at work in them. I know of a man who's a pastor, and he had a, a brother who was not a believer. They grew up in a Christian home. And it... it no one, we've never had John here to, to speak. Uh, he, he ministered in California, and he and his brother were playing golf one day, and they were about to tee off, and he had just engaged his brother and his, his non-Christian brother in a conversation and said, where, where are you at with God these days? And he, he said to his, his brother John, he said, I, I'm, I'm just not interested. I, I'm, ju I'm just not there, John. And he got ready to tee off, and right before he did, he looked back at his brother and he said, but I can't get away from the prayers of mom and dad. Isn't that something? That he knew that they prayed for him, even though he was, not, he was not where they wanted him to be spiritually. We can make an impact there. And I'm going to spe speak specifically to mothers here because that's who had the impact on Timothy. It wasn't his father, not, not, as, far as, uh, not as far as belief in Christ. Never, mothers, never, never, never underestimate that you and what you are planting in the lives of the children whom God has given to you if you have children. Many a woman has been God's instrument to win her children to the Lord. I know mine was. And it's not over. And so even regardless, you say, well, you know, my, my child has nothing to do with God. It's not over. That's the great thing about the fact that it's God who changes heart. It's not up to us. We're, we're just vessels. And God can get a hold of someone uh, like my own dad late in life 
very late in life. When humanly speaking, it looked impossible. Okay, let's move on. Then he says in verse 6, we're still trying to get to verse 7. I'm trying to get to verse 7. You're, you're just watching and hoping. Verse 6, he says, fan into flame. Fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. What was this that Paul's talking about? Seems kind of strange here. What was this gift? Probably, we're not told, but probably the fact that Timothy was a pastor teacher. He had that gift. It had been confirmed not only by Paul, but also the elders of the church when they had laid their hands upon Timothy as a sign of their endorsement, as a sign of of, of them commissioning him to this office, this role of pastor-teacher. And so the giftedness was there, but Paul says apparently the enthusiasm has waned or something was, was causing it to die out. It wasn't the loss of a gift, it was the loss of enthusiasm. Or maybe his fear was winning. Many of you here, all of us as Christians have at least one spiritual gift. But if all those gifts were used to their capacity, it's almost unimaginable what what might could happen. But for one reason or another, we can get discouraged, we can can get get down on ourselves or think God can't use me or or he doesn't use me in the way that, that I wish he would. And Paul is saying, look, it's like a fire. You build a campfire, that fire, if you don't tend it, will, will go down and down and it will begin to die out. And you have got to fan the flames and you have got to tend the fire. And that's what he's saying to Timothy. Fan the flame of the gift that God has given to you. Have you ever burned with fire spiritually? When you saw the Lord working in you and through you and there comes a great sense of accomplishment to realize that God is doing that, And perhaps you've seen that, but perhaps it was long ago. And you might say, well, I I can relate to the fact that the flame has died. Uh, There appears to be nothing there. Listen, there's always embers there. And and it may surprise you that God wants you to to fan the flame. All right, now verse 7. He says, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. First, application to Timothy. Secondly, application to us. We've all got different personalities. We all have different temperaments. And when we're converted, our temperaments don't change, by and large. Christ transforms us, but he transforms us as we were as far as our personalities and our temperaments. I was talking with a fellow that does inner city ministry and he works with a number of gang members. He ministers to gang members. And he told me, this is just a few weeks ago, he said, they make fantastic evangelists when they're converted. He said, you want to know why? I said, why? He said, because they don't fear anything. They're not afraid of people. So that can be what's seen as a negative without Christ can be very positive with Christ. Well, how does fear show itself in our lives? It may be fear of people. In its basic sense, afraid of what they're going to think about us, afraid of what they're going to say about us, afraid of what they might do. It may be hesitancy to, to follow God in certain areas. Oh, you know, I can't do that. I'm, something, something bad might happen. Uh, you back away from opportunities to serve because you lack confidence. It, it may be half-heartedness. So fear can show up in a number of ways. And, and Timothy struggled with this. We know from other places in the New Testament where often Paul would exhort Timothy don't be timid. 
He'd exhort others like the Corinthians when we looked at chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians. When Timothy comes, basically be an encouragement to him because he's naturally timid. But it shouldn't be this way because verse 7 says that God has given us a different spirit. Even in our same personalities that we had before Christ. And that spirit gives us these three things. First, it says it's a spirit of power. A power to endure, power to go on whatever the conditions. The best example is Peter. Here was Peter denying Christ in the face of a servant girl on the night Jesus was arrested. Uh, Afraid, timid, and then what do we see just a few weeks later? Preaching before the multitudes on the day of Pentecost, and then he and others bearing witness before the very court that had condemned Jesus. What had happened? Had he suddenly just decided, I'm going to be brave. I'm going to, to, to... be a man in this situation. No, what had happened is God's spirit had come upon him. And he had taken a person maybe who was naturally timid, at least in certain situations, and now there was power. There was power. Secondly, there's love. When you and I are timid and fearful, basically our attention is on ourselves. Our focus, we become self-preoccupied. And the only cure for self is to become absorbed in someone or something else. That's the best cure for self. Now, I think people say, I never knew how self-centered I was and how sinful I was until I got married. And then they'll say, well, then I really found out when I had a child. Then I really found out how self-centered I was. That's true, but probably it's not that anything changed. It just made you more aware. And you begin to focus on the welfare of this other person and that that timidity begins to vanish and that self-preoccupation, hopefully. And the third, it says it's a spirit also of self-control. Power and love and self-control. Fear causes us to lose self-control. Have you ever been in a situation where you were so fearful that you almost kind of lost it? You just, you were making terrible decisions and you, I have, and they're pretty clear in my mind and not to bore with you the details, twice was in a boat during a storm when I had Barbara and our son Stephen and my optimistic wife said oh those clouds and lightning that's going in a different direction we just, yeah it was coming right toward us and we were seven miles from where we need to go so I under speed ran the boat up on a beach and took cover under a dock and I, I couldn't even think straight the fear was so great another was in a hurricane another was when I was threatened by four guys uh, it's not politically correct to say thugs or Anyway, when I was in junior high school, uh, right before school at about 7.45, right outside the school building, these other students, and I I was rattled. And and when you're fearful, when you're filled with fear, you don't make good decisions. You don't think rationally. Uh, And so the Spirit of God gives us a spirit of self-control. The Holy Spirit is one who produces this in us. What was Paul telling Timothy? He wasn't saying, hey, just decide that you're going to have power. Decide that you're going to have love. Decide that you're going to have self-control. What Paul is saying is, what God is saying through Paul is God has given you and me in Christ this spirit. And the spirit is one that can overcome timidity. 
I uh, told you, I'd, we, as you leave today, there are these, you can't read this. <laughs> You're invited to Easter at First Presbyterian Church on April the 1st, 9 or 11, 15, the website. It, it's just an invitation I hope you'll take and give to somebody and invite them personally. One of you before the service said, I, why don't we just do postcards? Intentionally didn't do postcards because we want it to be a personal invitation. But so as you leave, there are baskets. And if you want to take some of those to give to give to someone and invite them, not your friend who goes to the Baptist church every week. I'm talking about unchurched people that would not be in church that week. Don't trade services with another church member somewhere. So I was sitting in Starbucks yesterday, and uh, I, I'd much rather speak to a couple of hundred people than one person. I, I can't explain it. Your pastor has issues, I've told you. I mean, but I, I do not, I'm not good at parlor conversation. I'm just, I'm not. So I was thinking, okay, I want to put this on that, on that uh, bulletin board over there, but I know you're supposed to get permission. So I went over and I looked at the, found the smallest, most defenseless barista. <laughs> <laughs> not really but uh, I said hey and I was sitting there praying Lord would you give me the would you give me overcome my fear and timidity to go over there and ask if I could put this up on that and she said sure it's kind of small <laughs> and I uh, said that's why it'll draw attention because everything else is so big so I put it in the middle and it's like your attention went to the to the middle there what is that it's not profound is it that's the spirit of God that's the spirit that God has given us, power and love and self-control. I want to close with this. Um, if you're not Presbyterian, even if you are Presbyterian, you've probably not heard of the Covenanters. So let me tell you just briefly. In the 17th century, the 1600s, there arose a conflict between the church and the state in Scotland. And our roots as Presbyterians go back to Scotland to a man named John Knox. And those who remained steadfast in their Presbyterian beliefs and refused to take an oath of allegiance to the king, saying that he was the head of the church, if they refused to take that oath, they became known as covenanters. They believed that Christ was the head of the church, and as a result of that belief, they were punished. Many were forced to pay the ultimate price for this with their lives. And so they were chased, and they were sought after by government soldiers, the royalists and the dragoons, and they, they chased them. And, and that's why I mentioned last week, that, or in, in the inquiries class, I mentioned that, that they would have in Scotland these large outdoor communion services. The reason was they had to stay away from their churches, and they had to do these things in secret. So it wasn't just men and women who were killed, for their beliefs. It was also children. And I read one story about a young girl, and she was going to attend a communion service that was being held by the Covenanters on a Sunday afternoon, and of course it was prohibited. And the soldiers of the King of England were looking everywhere, and people were going, looking to find out where they were going to meet to partake of this communion service. And this girl, this young girl, walked around a corner, and as she did so, she came face to face with a group of soldiers. And she knew she was trapped. 
And for a moment, she wondered what she was going to say, but immediately on being questioned, she found herself answering. Listen closely. My elder brother has died, and they are going to read his will this afternoon. And he has done something for me, and he has left something for me, and I want to hear them read the will. And they let her pass. Notice what she said. Her elder brother had died. Christ had died for her sins. In the communion service, they were going to read the will, the scripture. They're going to read it again, and she was going to be reminded of what Christ had left for her and what he had done for her and the work that he had accomplished on her behalf. That's the spirit of power and love and self-control that at that moment gave that young girl the words to say. Do you have that? If you have Christ, he resides in you. And those areas that you're fearful and you're timid in, trust him as you move in faith to give you power, love, and self-control. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you for our elder brother and that he has died. And in his will, he says he's gone to prepare a place for us and he will come again and take us to be with him where we will be forever. So in the meantime, enable us, we pray, to serve you because of your grace and your mercy and your peace. In Jesus' name, amen.